All right, so let's, let's get in the Word. So if you have your Bible, find John chapter 9. Uh, so this is going to be the last uh, installment of our study through John's Gospel before Christmas. Uh, next Sunday, he's not in here right now, but next Sunday, Dylan Sanders will be our teacher. Uh, Laura and I will not be here. And then, like I said, we won't have Sunday school at all, 27th or the 3rd of January. So we'll pick back up in John, John chapter 10 on January 10th. But today we're John chapter 9. This is a really, I love this chapter. It's a great chapter. We just dipped our toe into it a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the second of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. Uh, the one that's found twice in John's gospel, I am the light of the world, that's found in chapter 8, verse 12, as well as chapter 9, verse 5. Um, we didn't spend a great deal of time. We noted that he said it again in 9, 5, but we didn't spend a great deal of time that day in, the, in chapter 9. So here we'll think about it more carefully. Just to set the stage before we read the chapter, uh, we've spent the last couple of chapters in John uh, during the Jewish Feast of, of Booths, or depending on your translation, sometimes it's referred to as the... Uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, Jesus said some important things about himself during that feast. Uh, he, he, he specifically claiming deity for himself, that salvation is only found in him. And he's, and, and he's done that before in John, but not in this, like in the middle of the temple, in the middle of this most popular Jewish feast, all these crowds of people to say those same things. He said them before to Nicodemus privately or to... Uh, or to the woman at the well, but now he's saying it to a crowd, and this is only a months months before he's going to go to the cross. Um, but in these last couple of chapters, just remembering where we've been, he 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 said those things in such a way that that would have drawn maximal attention. Uh, he, he showing how God's acts of salvation th for Israel throughout Old Testament history were pointing forward to Him, were illustrative of what. Um, he was going to come and do, most, most pertinently, the events of the Exodus, of coming out of, of, of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, God providing manna to feed them in the wilderness, water from the rock to satisfy them, leading them at night through a pillar of fire. Jesus gathers up all of those things in this feast setting and, and, and says that all of those things were just faint shadows of the salvation that God himself was coming in Jesus Christ to provide. Um, and, and in fact, he says more than that. He just says, he doesn't just say that all of those Old Testament acts, manna, water, pillar of fire, merely coming out of slavery, they weren't just faint shadows. They weren't just preludes to the salvation that Jesus was coming to provide. But uh, they actually pointed forward to they were actually saying something. They were actually, uh, yeah, they, they were actually signposts pointing you to something beyond themselves. So it's not like, it's not like um, later Jesus would come and he would say, I'm kind of like that. And you would say, oh, I never thought about that. No, really and truly, those events in the Old Testament were performed and then explained by God in the Scriptures. That's a point, too. Just know that everything God does is revelatory. And, and so what you find, always whenever God did an act in Scripture, 
that act was revelation, but it was always accompanied by an explanation. It was always accompanied by a word. And so those acts that God did, manna, water, fire, cloud, they were always attended by God's word of explanation. This, that's why they were to be pointing forward to Jesus, and they should have gotten it. Um, and Jesus took this opportunity at the Feast of Booths to make that clear to them, that he, he had come to save all who, who come to him in repentance and faith, um, he was God who who's come to save them, just as promised. But you, you might remember how the last chapter ended um, with the Jewish rulers, most notably the Pharisees, trying to kill Jesus for saying these things. They, in the last verse of chapter 8, they, they, they uh, picked up stones to stone Jesus to death because they thought he was committing blasphemy, so clearly calling God himself God. But Jesus got away from them unharmed. And that's where chapter 9 begins. We come to chapter 9... Jesus is no longer in the temple, like he was in chapters 7 and 8, but, but he's still in Jerusalem. And in, as far as I can tell, he'll still be in Jerusalem until the end of the next chapter, when in chapter 10, verse 40, we read, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. At first and there he remained. So until that time, he's still here in Jerusalem. And because of it, the, 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 the tension is building. The tension is, is building around Jesus. It's going to continue to build and increase, leading eventually to five or six months after this, um, his arrest and his crucifixion. The events that we're about to read in chapter 9 are going to contribute to that mounting tension. So with that, if you found chapter 9, uh, follow along with me as I read the chapter beginning in verse 1. We'll just read the, the whole chapter. All right, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No. But it's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about the man since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. 
and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then, is he, how then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, see, they knew what was up. They knew, they knew, they knew. Why else would you make that rule? Anyway, he was about to be put out of the synagogue. Why would you? Come on now. They knew. Anyway, therefore his parents said he is of age. Ask him. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, that though I was blind, now I see. And he said, and they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They did in the last chapter, by the way. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And uh, we ask that as we come to it for just a few minutes this morning, you might show us favor. Give us, give us eyes to see the truth in these words and in this story. Give us minds to understand the truth. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth. Wills to obey what it is you call us to do. Give us all ears to hear, I pray, and give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this chapter is pretty straightforward, and it, and it if ever there was a time where it's easy to take a whole chapter in one go, it's this one. Because it very cleanly tells one complete story in sort of three basic segments of the story. Just, just to 
30,000-foot flyover looking down on this chapter, just break down what those segments are. The main event, the miracle or the sign, is described in verses 1 through 7. That's where Jesus heals the man who had been born blind, verses 1 to 7. Then the bulk of the rest of the chapter, from verses 8 all the way down to 34, uh, it describes different groups trying to get their heads around and trying to come to grips with what exactly just happened. Again, that runs from 8 to 34, and even that is broken down into different little scenes. With You begin in verse 8 with the, the man's neighbors trying to understand uh, what had happened to their neighbor. Then, beginning in verse 13, the Pharisees come. And then in verse uh, 18, they, they bring the man's parents into the scene. And then, finally, verse 24, it's just the Pharisees with the man, formerly blind man, again. But then the last clear segment of the story is when Jesus returns. So Jesus was not around from verses 8 to 34. Jesus comes back in verse 35. And so from verse 35 to the end of the chapter... He, he, he uh, speaks to the faith of the, of the man he had healed, and he speaks to the stubborn unbelief and unrepentance of the Pharisees. So that's how the chapter breaks down, and that's how we're going to think through it. So if you're taking notes, here's taking those same divisions, here's what I think we see in them. In verses 1 to 7, we'll see what I call the revelation, meaning what Jesus reveals about himself in this sign, in this miracle. Because, again... Um, not only the fact of his healing this man, but also in how he performed the miracle. Uh, it, it isn't just something that happened, but something that happened that reveals truth about him. I mean, that's the whole reason it's recorded here. So the revelation in verses 1 to 7, we'll see what that is. And then in that large section, verses 8 to 34, just, just the responses to the miracle or the sign, as John likes to call it. I've already mentioned the different groups that we see in that, and we'll just walk quickly through each one and see what we can glean from it. And then finally, in that last section, verses 35 to 41, we'll see the reply that Jesus makes when he returns to the man to whom he had given sight. That's where we're going. So let's dive in and think first about the revelation we find in verses 1 through 7 in the description of the healing itself. So the chapter begins just saying about Jesus as he passed by, but it doesn't give it a like, like John is off to do, it doesn't give us any indication of how much time has passed between this and the last chapter. Um, I think some time has passed because we do learn that the miracle that he performs was done on a Sabbath day. And just knowing when the, the Feast of Tabernacles was, it, it would seem that at least a week has passed. And so now we're on another Sabbath. But I don't think a lot of time has passed because... He, meant, he repeats again, I am the light of the world, which he just had done in chapter 8. I don't think, I think contextually it's around the same time, right? But it tells us that he found a man uh, who had been blind from birth. Uh, one that we later learned down in verse 8 that uh, he had begged for, for food and money or whatever. His neighbors had seen him as a beggar. How Jesus knew that this man was born blind, we're not told, but immediately... What you're immediately struck with in this story is not just this man was blind. I mean, it's not uncommon to see a blind man. Um, it's not uncommon for Jesus to happen upon that man. What's, what strikes you immediately in the story is, is, uh, um, is his disciples. And when they see this man and how they respond to this man and how they interpret the situation. They ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned? 
this man or his parents that he was born blind. They're thinking in a way, I'll get to it in just a minute, that I think we're often still prone to think in ways that we're often prone to think. Certainly it was common not just among his disciples, but even among the Jewish leaders in that day to think in this kind of way. And not only that, but it was as old as Job's friends to think in this way. Certainly Job's friends. You remember Job. I mean, Job's friends, uh, they believed that any kind of suffering in this life must be linked to some sin, must be linked to some uh, disobedience. I mean, because Job's friends, I'm not saying they were altogether wicked. I don't think they were right, but they weren't wicked. They were, in some sense, largely in that book, trying to defend the goodness of God. How could this happen to you and God still be good? So in, in, in their effort to defend the goodness of God, they look at Job and said, you must have done something for this to come upon you. Um, and the disciples were thinking in this same kind of way. And clearly they reasoned that if this man was born blind, he couldn't have himself done something. Um, so maybe his parents sinned. Maybe that explains why he was born blind. What else could explain it? That's what they thought. And if we're honest, I think even sometimes we're still prone to think this way. I mean, even as believers. Um, that if something isn't going well in my life, it must be because God has withdrawn his favor. And he, if that's the case, it must be because I'm walking in some kind of disobedience. I've done something. I've sinned. I'm in error. Hence, God has withdrawn his favor. Hence, this is happening to me. And certainly, God does deal with us often like that. I mean, read it in the scriptures. I mean, he often does deal with us according to what we have done, blessing us when we walk in obedience or withdrawing his hand of favor when we walk in disobedience, perhaps to teach us the error of our ways and to draw us more nearly to himself. But it is a mistake to believe that is always how it works. I mean, just ask the Apostle Paul. The man walked in crazy obedience. And you wouldn't want to trade your life for his, not for a day. Right? I mean, it's a mistake to believe that all, God always acts in that fashion. And therefore, all blessing in my life is because of my obedience. And therefore, all suffering in my life is because of sin that I've done. Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus corrects his disciples immediately in verse 3 that neither this man nor his parents sinned to cause his blindness from birth. But it was an opportunity, he says, for the glory of God and the works of God to be revealed in his life. Now somebody, somebody who's coming new to the Bible or, or even some believers might have, they might still quibble in their minds with something like this. They might still find some kind of cruelty in that. Like, how, how could God allow this man to be born uh, and, and live all his days in beggarly blindness, right? Just to do some miracle later. Isn't there some kind of cruelty in that? I mean, they, yeah, great. He received his sight, but he still had to live all that time as a blind beggar. Somebody might say that. But if we take the Bible at its word, if we take God at his word, I, I, I believe that when it is all said and done, and we experience, if we're trusting in Christ, and we experience in full what Paul quoting the Old Testament says, what God 
what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor, nor, nor the heart of man to imagine what God has planned for those who love him. I think in that day when we experience that in full, we will agree with Paul who said in Romans 8, 18, all the sufferings of this present day are not worth comparing to the glory that is be, to be revealed. But note carefully what Jesus says there in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus was about to do that work, right? Again, saying to anyone who would listen that he himself is God. He's not just doing a work of obedience like we would do. He's doing a work of God. He was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed in him. And he's about to do that work. If, if, if the work he was about to do is a work of God and he then does that work, it testifies yet again that he's God. And on top of that, he reiterates in verse 5 the divine reference to himself saying, I am the light of the world. And we saw in chapter 8, that chapter 8 in John is probably the strongest chapter in John's gospel asserting the deity of Christ. But in these opening verses to chapter 9, that emphasis doesn't really slow up. So having corrected his disciples, he now turns his attention back to the blind man. And there's a reason why John doesn't just tell us that Jesus healed this man's blindness. But he goes to great lengths to tell us exactly how he did it. I mean, healing people, we've seen earlier, in, not just in other Gospels, but in this Gospel. We've seen earlier in John, Jesus healing people merely with a word. I mean, at least once when Jesus wasn't even in the same town. Just <laughs> go, your servant as well. He wasn't even in the same town. Just think about that again. That's wild. But the fact that he could just speak a word, or for that matter, think a thought, and, and the man would be healed if he used any other means whatsoever to perform the work, then whatever those means were are worth noting. And in this case, it's kind of wild. Jesus spits on the ground, and he makes mud, rubs it on the man's eyes, and, go, and tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and you'll be healed. What are we supposed to see in, the, in, the, in those instructions? Well, here's what, I, here's what it brings to my mind. Jesus using dirt and mud um, sort of makes you recall creation itself, right? Where, where God made man out of the dust of the earth. And he said it was very good. He made man whole out of the dirt of the ground. John has already told us about, in chapter 1, verse 3, about God the Son who would later take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, said all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we've already come across Jesus, more, more specifically God the Son in Jesus Christ as creator. So it's not surprising to see Jesus physically taking the posture of the first creation in healing this man in whom I believe also he's working a new creation. Right? He's not just giving this man physical sight. He's also giving him, as we'll see as, the, as the, the, the story proceeds, he's giving this man spiritual sight. In addition to the mud in his eyes, Jesus tells this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam for his healing. And if anything, go and wash and you'll be made well. What does that make you think of in the Old Testament? Familiar? Makes you think of Naaman. That's what I think of. In 1 Kings chapter 5, 
when Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, comes, he has leprosy. Remember, and he wants to be made well. And they had heard that there's a prophet in Israel, Elisha, who, who could help him. And what does Elisha tell him to do? Go to the Jordan and wash seven times and you'll be healed. Now, I mean, the details aren't exactly the same, but the general idea of go wash in the water and you'll be made well conjures up that Old Testament background that it, at the very least, that Old Testament story revealed that Elisha was a genuine prophet of God. And if, at the very least, this too reveals that there's something unique about Jesus. There's something special about Jesus. And later on in verse 17 in the chapter, if you, if you remember, when, when the formerly blind man is asked who Jesus is, he says in verse 17, he is a prophet. You know? So the story as a whole, and certainly what we have seen so far in John's gospel, reveal that Jesus is more than a prophet. I mean, the first verse reveals that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's not merely another Elisha. He's not even merely another prophet like Moses, but he's certainly not less than that. He is a prophet, and he's a priest, and he's a king, and he's divine. But don't miss the fact that when Jesus told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, John was careful to tell us, the reader, what the word Siloam means. It means sent. Why does he tell us that? I don't think that John is telling us that it means sent because Jesus sent him to the pool to be, be made well. I believe, based on the imagery of the mud and a new creation, that John is telling us this means sent because Jesus is now, in making him a new creation, is going to be sending him to bear witness to his name, which we also see as the story proceeds. So the imagery of this opening scene is vivid. I, you know, the mud and the water from the pool that means scent. I, I just think it moves from new creation to washing and seeing to sending. Like it, it just new life to new faith to new allegiance. I think that's what the imagery conjures up in our minds. And before we leave this opening scene, I just want to point one more thing out about it. I, I, um, the ultimate focal point of these opening verses is not on the blind man necessarily now seeing, but on the one who gave him sight. Um, and we, we don't need to miss the most obvious reality that Jesus gave sight to this man born blind. And while it was a life-changing reality for this man, no doubt, it would have been an earthquake to other Jews who found out this man now seeing. Why? Because the Old Testament could not have been clearer that miracles like this, precisely like this, would happen when the Messiah came. Let me just give you one example. Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. This is a messianic prophecy. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So you see right there in the middle of that prophecy of the coming Messiah, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. It's in fact the same prophetic reality that Jesus points John the Baptist to. In Matthew 11, when John the Baptist has a, 
a moment where he says, are you the one who, who is to come or should we look for another? What does Jesus say to him? Go and say to John, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and he goes on. But in that Isaiah prophecy, it is God coming to save. And the signs attended with it will be blind seeing. <laughs> Jesus uh, sending this man who was not just blind, but born blind, now seeing, would be jaw-dropping. I mean, it would still be today. But especially in a moment in time where there was messianic fervor, looking, actively looking for the Messiah to come. Jesus is revealing himself again as God who is coming to save his people. He is, and he's giving them living, walking around assurance in healing a man born blind. This man was receiving, I believe, spiritual sight along with physical sight. We see it play out as the story progresses. As he bears witness to Jesus, he displays increasing boldness, but, it, but faces increasing hostility along with it, just like Jesus. So with that, let's think about the responses that come to um, this new sight, both physical and spiritual, in this formerly blind man. Well, we'll move quickly through these because there's a number of scenes in it. But first, it's his neighbors, beginning in verse 8. Uh, then, they, then, like I said, the neighbors will eventually bring the Pharisees, who will then bring his parents, and then it'll just be the Pharisees again. But I want you to notice in these different scenes, one is, I, notice um, the response of that particular group, and then notice also the witness and the testimony of the man who can now see. Notice their response, and notice whenever the formerly blind man speaks up, just notice what he says. Uh, notice how, particularly, notice how, how more specific and bold the man's testifying gets. First, he meets his neighbors in verses 8 to 12. They can't believe it. Look at their response in verses 8 and, eight and 9. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, yeah, that's him. Others said, no, but it just looks like him. And he's just standing there saying, what's well, me? Again, these are his neighbors. These are his neighbors. In other words, these are the people who saw him every day. How, could, how can any of them not believe? How could anybody say, no, that's not him? Somebody that just looks an awful lot like him. How could any of them, how could, yeah, I think it's because whoever heard of a blind man now seeing, right? I mean, the formerly blind man says that very thing in verse 32. Never since the world began had it been heard, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. I think some of them said, no, 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 there's no way that's him. I think, I think it was so far away from what they could accept as conceivable that they simply couldn't believe it. Their preconceived notions of what is possible dictated what they were willing to believe. And it kept several of them from believing. Don't be fooled, though. People still, people still today remain in unbelief for this reason. I can't imagine a God like this. I can't imagine that he could, he could forgive me because of what I've done. I can't imagine fill in the blank. 
and we only choose to believe what we can imagine might be true. And it keeps a lot of people away from faith. And it even keeps a lot of Christians, by the way. It keeps a lot of Christians from walking fully in the freedom that they have in Christ. But the man is steadfast in his testimony. Notice his testimony. Verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and told me to go wash. Now I can see. So the man, he, he bears witness to the man called Jesus. Maybe some believe, most didn't, and they went and got the Pharisees. In verse 13, they bring the Pharisees. How do they respond? He tells them his testimony. John tells us, actually, uh, in verse 16, that there was a division among them. Um, some of them, some of them, actually, um, some of them actually, actually did sort of at least almost believe. I mean, Nicodemus had believed, and so some of them were like, how could a sinner do some, such signs, they say in verse 16. But then those, there were others, other Pharisees, they did not believe. And they didn't believe for the same reason we pointed out in chapter 7. They didn't believe because of fixed opinions. Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. He didn't keep the Sabbath. Their fixed opinion of what was appropriate to do or not do on the Sabbath, that clouded their whole interpretation, their, 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 their particular understanding of the law dictated to them what they would accept as appropriate or not. But it's, again, it's noteworthy that some of them did believe and took steps toward it. That, those that did believe, surely they knew. <laughs> those, those, those Pharisees who did believe, surely they, they knew that to think only of the fact that it was the Sabbath day that this happened and to rule it out because of that was to ignore the extraordinary miracle that was standing right in front of them. I have to deny what is right in front of my face to say that. Something must be true of Jesus for that to happen. But the formerly blind man speaks up in this case, and he says even more boldly, he doesn't just say this, the man called Jesus, he says in verse 17 now, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Last time he just said this man called Jesus, now he's a prophet. Verse, we're actually told in verse 18, by the way, the, how did some of those Pharisees ignore the miracle standing right in front of them? Well, in verse 18, we learned that the way they did it was simply to disbelieve that he had been born blind. Well, you weren't really blind. Yeah, I just chose to sit in bag for all those years. But anyway, they called his parents to make sure, and his parents confirmed, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was born, we're his parents, that's our son. He was born blind. How can he see then? Well, they said, ask him. He's a big boy. Basically, they threw him under the bus. Because it says in verse 22, they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. Fear of man, again, came up in chapter 7, comes up again here. Fear of man kept them from believing the man who gave sight to their very own son, whom they knew was blind, born that way. So the Pharisees who didn't believe turn their attention back to the formerly blind man, and now they threaten him. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Right? And essentially they, say, they, they, they want him to lie and, and, and even say something that's not true. Yeah, you're right, I wasn't born blind. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like say something that he knew was not true about Jesus just to confirm what they want to believe. So... They give him an opportunity to speak again, and he tells them the same story again about who had healed him and how. 
And watch his boldness in verse 27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It almost makes you seem like, makes it seem like this dude had some history already with the Pharisees. You know, that he was not afraid in the slightest to finally say what he's always wanted to say. What's the most striking word in verse 27 to you in what he said there? For my money, it's the word also. Do you also want to become his disciples? Implying what? He considered himself one at this point. And that went too far for the Pharisees. And in verse 28, they revile him. And in verse 34, they cast him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. But watch these beautiful words. In verse 34, they cast him out. In verse 35, when Jesus heard they had cast him out, he came and found him. Jesus came and found him. And here we see his reply as we come to the end of the story. Jesus found him, and then he, 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 he amps it up. He knew this man at this point was serious about following him. He had said, the man called Jesus, he's a prophet, and I'm his disciple. He was coming to really understand who Jesus was, and he knew this man was serious about following him, and so he replied to the formerly blind man with more about himself. He asks him in verse 35, he doesn't just say, do you believe? He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? I don't think this man was an idiot. He knew the Scriptures. When Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? When he heard that title, Son of Man, it would have immediately um, drawn his mind to Daniel 7. Like, that's where that, that's the most prominent instance uh, of Son of Man in the Old Testament is in Daniel 7, where clearly you will see one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, prophecy about Christ, but this in Daniel 7, the, the, the Son of Man is clearly a divine figure who rules over an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And the formerly blind man says, yeah, wow, who is it? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus says, basically, you're looking at him. <laughs> Which is an amazing thing to say to a man who, to that day, couldn't, couldn't look at anything. You're looking at him. And the man does what, it, what is only appropriate. In verse 38, he professes his faith. Lord, I believe. Did you notice that um, did you know that that earlier in the I'm trying to find the the uh, reference earlier in the story he referred to Jesus as sir and now it's Lord in verse 38 Lord I believe and he worshipped and what is more Jesus accepts his worship I mean why is it a big deal that Jesus accepts his worship here? Because clearly the Bible says, I mean, first commandment, only God is to be worshiped. And everybody else knows it. In, in Revelation 19, verses 8 to 10, angels 
clearly say, only God is to be worshipped. Angels will say, don't worship me. When they, in, in, in Acts, when, when uh, people tried to bow down and worship Paul after a miracle, he rent his garments and said, don't worship me, worship God. In Acts chapter 10, 25 and 26, Peter said, only God is to be worshipped. Again, like I said, Acts 14 is where Paul said, only God is to be worshipped. In Luke 4, 8, Jesus himself says, only God is to be worshipped. And yet here he is himself worshiping, accepting the worship given to him. And upon this man's profession of faith and worship, Jesus now turns his reply to the Pharisees who refuse to believe. And they say, are we also blind? And he tells them they're blind even though they think they see. They don't feel like they need his forgiveness, and he says, you're not going to have it. Just again, to reiterate, forgiving sins and consigning to judgment, those are prerogatives of God alone. And Jesus is doing it. So the chapter begins with the blind seeing, I contend, in more ways than one. And it ends with those who think they see being blind. The man's physical sight came instantly when he washed in the pool of Siloam. I love how the Lord was patient with the man as his faith grew through adversity throughout the chapter until the moment when he knew he truly believed and truly understood who Jesus was and he worshiped and Jesus accepts that worship. What a beautiful chapter this was.